From VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Chabal. And this is the VinePair Podcast. Basically New Year's Eve edition. 2023 in review. <laughs> yeah, I mean, basically. It's been a crazy year. Oh, a lot so of shit crazy. that's happened. Big year. It's been a big year. Like, uh, you know, lots of stuff in the drink space. I mean, the biggest story of the entire year is wine's fucked. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, that's that's basically been like, I feel like that's been the drumbeat of the entire year. Yeah. Was just people talking about, lamenting about, you know, wine's placing on menus, you know, people not drinking wine as much as they're drinking spirits, spirits leapfrogging everything now, you know, really becoming like the dominant player, especially among the younger set of demographics. Uh, you know, I just feel like that to me was the biggest story of the year as a whole was just that doom and gloom and wine, doom and gloom and wine bigger yeah. than. And I think it really all started at the beginning of last year with that Silicon Valley report. I would say the Silicon Valley Bank collapse was a part of that, too. <laughs> I know. I was going to say RIP, but uh, now it's back, weirdly, yeah. uh, but owned by another company. And I think it's funny. I, I don't know if you guys have heard the, pod- the podcast ads that they're running. It's like, still the bank you trust. It's <laughs> like, uh... <laughs> <laughs> you, you did, there was a run that took you out. But uh, anyways, yeah, but I think that's where it started, where it was like really trying to – it was really sounding the alarm that like the California wine industry specifically, because that's what the report covers, had not done enough to talk to the next generation of drinkers and that like this market share that it was – you know, that wine was seeing slip away was slipping away faster and faster and faster and something had to be done. And I And I really think that what happened this year, which was so interesting, was that – Instead of doing anything, a lot of the industry just screamed. <laughs> Sometimes at us. Panic, panic, yeah. Yeah, it was just like, yeah, we're fucked. It's like, instead of being like, everyone go get water and put the fire out, everyone's like, there's a fire. Like, that felt like that's all that happened this year at everything I went to. But do you think that's because there were so many other issues in wine this year, like between oversupply and horrible harvest? Like, there are just so many other things to but worry that, about. that happens in other years, too. It's I true, think, it's true. I okay. think that this is just like, the news that was a shock to no one yet everyone was shocked yeah does that make sense do you guys agree with that assessment like people have been talking this forever and it's like but we're shocked (laughs) yeah i think part of it with wine was that was so hard is that in a way that we've talked about a few times on the pod in different dimensions the wine industry as a whole doesn't talk to itself the way that the spirits industry does maybe it's sort of more similar to the beer industry in that regard in that both the largest players are a little more set apart from the rest of the industry. I don't know to what extent they talk to one another in a, even in a sort of informal sense. And I think there was a lot of, a lot of people who didn't really realize the depth of the problem because maybe on an individual winery level or even an individual like regional level, perhaps it wasn't super clear because some of these percentage declines are not super noticeable on a winery basis, especially when it's kind of being folded into everything that was going on with COVID, everything that was going on, just broader economic turbulence, et cetera. And it's not until sort of you have this larger scale collections of data people talking about it and being like, wait a second, writing about it. You know, this is a crisis of sorts for this industry. For a lot of the the producers, especially on the small and medium scale to realize like, wait a second, this also maybe affects us, right? Because I think that's the other thing is there's a, a sometimes an, uh, a, a willful ignorance about the way in which these trends impact smaller producers. I think sometimes smaller producers like to think, and in some cases they may be correct, that they're insulated from this because they're just – their wines are so good. They're so desirable. They're so sought after. And that may be true on a case-by-case basis. But I would not want to bet my business on my single 
brand or single property being able to kind of rise above the water level of the overall industry on a consistent basis. Yeah, that makes sense. What were the other big? I've got one. Go. Gen Z doesn't drink. That's been the story for a while, but I think we're going to disprove it this year. Yeah, it's but I think in. this was that was another refrain from this year yep. that I feel people were very willfully ignoring the data. Yep. And I hope it changes for next year. Similar to the doom and gloom in wine. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm tired of hearing about these things, actually. So I think that was another big one from this year, too. Yep. It definitely ex- took off in this in 2023. We, yeah, we saw that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Zach? I don't know if it was the biggest story of the year, but to me it was one of the most captivating in a sort of train wrecky way was whatever the fuck has happened to Bud Light, just in terms of everything from a series of gross and in more ways than one mismanagements of a crisis to their like continued slippage as a as a brand that, w- I mean, a year ago we would have thought was bulletproof more or less. Yeah. And... It's a reminder that nothing is, that no brand, no no matter how popular, no matter how successful, is assured of that level of success moving forward. And also a reminder that, like, you can't middle it forever. And I think, you know, Bud Light has kind of clearly showed where they're, in the end, where their loyalties lie. And, you know, maybe that's a prudent business decision for them. But I do think that it is a reminder that for brands in general – Controversy abounds, and the more you sort of allow yourself to be the subject of controversy without kind of uh, taking clear action, the worse it's going to go for you, I think is my big takeaway. Yeah. Also, maybe people were sick of light beer. I don't know. No, I, I think I, you're right. I think so. I also think that this was like the perfect example of bad business decisions due to corporate culture where I think that there's there's potentially a culture there um, that probably is coming uh, not from the US but from leadership in Brazil uh, where you don't apologize and I think that that was like probably the biggest thing that ultimately fucked them was just not coming out and saying basically like you know we we put this person in harm's way you know, we should have done this differently. We apologize, but we also stand behind the decision to work with them. And this is going to be a masterclass in business schools. In as I mean, we've talked about this before as a case study for decades to come. And I think, again, this is often what can happen when there is a larger entity that just sees slipping and they're, they're coming from the corporate headquarters in another country. They don't understand the entire makeup of what's happening. And they just see that there is a cohort of the product that is angry and they think, okay, it's time to make them happy. And triage. Right. Yeah. And they don't know, they don't know what that will, they don't realize what that will do to the brand as it's a whole. Short-sighted. They made a very short-sighted decision and then they doubled down on that short-sighted decision and just said, instead of saying, we fucked up with this short-sighted decision, we're sorry and we're, you know, and this, and this brand is for, like, the thing about Bud Light before this all happened was that Bud Light was that brand that was kind of for everybody. Like, everybody drank Bud Light. Like, everyone drank it in college. It was the politically, like, it is now, but, but like, instead, Bud Light made the decision. Instead of saying, like, look, we're for both. We're for everyone in America. And, like, we work with, you know, all different groups of people, et cetera. They instead, like, very much were like, okay, we're, we're a beer for the right now. 
and I think that it was a huge mistake, and there was a chance that they could have saved it when they had the opportunity to say it, sort of say we fucked up with our initial response, and they didn't say that, and it is what it is at this point. And Modelo is the beer of the people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just is. I mean, I think, you know, an- another crazy story this year was sort of what we've seen happen in tequila and this massive mm-hmm. continued rise. But now, honestly, a little bit of a fall, especially on the super premium side and the celebrity side. And I do think that uh, Josh has made this prediction uh, in our predictions article. But I, I think that we're going to quietly see a few celebrity tequilas close their doors in 2024. And we're talking about that in the next episode. I don't care. I'm bringing it up now. Uh but I think that that because that conversation's been ongoing. Fine, I'm done then. I'm not talking anymore. <laughs> okay, what about what about Martini Mania? Like this has exploded this year. I think every menu, every on menu. every bar has a f- dedicated Martini menu. I mean, we basically predicted that as well. Yeah, <sighs> we're so smart. But We're I, so smart. <laughs> but I think it's been yeah really really remarkable to see it come back. Yes, in such a strong way. And just totally captures captured drinkers of all ages. Yes. Tim didn't shut the fuck up out about it for like five years and then there it was. <laughs> it's you know, I mean it, it is. I think it's because it's it's it is that drink that feels again, that fully embraces the overall trend that we said we were gonna see coming out of the pandemic, which was this trend this return in dining to the Roaring Twenties, the the brasserie, the steakhouse. And, like, I cannot tell you how many times this year we received a press release for either in New York, a really super high-end Korean restaurant that was opening, or a brasserie, some version of a brasserie, right? Like, or, I mean, we just got one for a new one that's opening a block away from us. I mean, or these, like, Cafe Carmelini right next to us, which is kind of a fucking brasserie. Like, all these, like, steak or meat-focused cocktail program heavy fancy um restaurants but where like you're not going to wear a coat and tie uh and where you think you might if you're there easily see leonardo dicaprio cheersing you like he's gatsby like that for sure is what we're seeing and very expensive and very expensive it's everywhere right and uh i think that all started towards the end of last year we saw that at the height with like Rock opening in rockefeller center and you know gage and tolner a few years before that but like now it's just Every fucking where. Everything is a brasserie now. Basically. What about you, Zach? What, what, what's another one, Zach? So I think one of the ones that's been most interesting to me has been the ascendance of spirit-based seltzers at the expense of you know, malt-based seltzers. And obviously High Noon is the biggest kind of indicator of that. But really interesting is that, you know, kind of category has continued to mature, kind of maybe find its level a little bit, but remain really important in the drink space, but that, you know, people have decided at a pretty sizable level that getting perhaps uh, slightly higher quality product, something that feels a little bit more premium, maybe delivers a little better flavor, doesn't have that kind of weird malt aftertaste, uh, and maybe comes with a few more calories is worth it to them that, and perhaps the sort of early phenomenon of kind of, you know, super locale, you know, sort of just straight one flavor kind of designed for a certain kind of drinker, you know, kind of a, a, a more party oriented drinker has, has given ground to, I guess you'd call more like the sipping 
Heart Seltzer. <laughs> and yeah. it, it's true. Or like this Heart Seltzer that's delivering, I think, better flavor. Mm-hmm. Like I think I hear that a lot from people. Like that's why they like the spirits-based ones. Um, it is pretty amazing that it just there's been that shift and this is for sure something that now people are gravitating towards you know asking for um i would also say um for from from what i've heard amongst the the core demo of people that like these vodka still reigns supreme as the base over tequila over tequila or anything else i think tequila has tried i think for the most part consumers haven't embraced as much as a lot of people thought they would i think it shows that like if people are drinking a seltzer what they're looking for is really the flavor of the seltzer and they want to be they want to you know vodka to sort of not be there at all besides its delivery of alcohol to their system and i think with the tequila ones or i've seen some people try to do some bourbon style ones etc when you add the flavor on top of it, people are just kind of like, I don't need all this mucking it up. Like, I'm trying to taste pineapple. I'm not trying to taste pineapple and tequila. Or I'm not, you know, and right. or it's not strong enough in tequila flavor. Like, it wasn't like the high ones weren't for us when we tasted them. Um, but then that defeats the purpose of being low ABV if you do higher tequila flavor. So I think that, again, it's like it's it's all vodka all the time. Yeah. You know. Great, great, great stuff. I mean, for me, those were the really dominant stories uh, that were specific to this year. I think, you know, we heard the same stuff, a lot of, a lot about climate change continuing to be a factor in the production, especially of wine, but of all alcohol and something that we're going to have to deal with uh, sooner rather than later. Let's get off our asses and just make it happen. Um, you know, we've continued to talk about, like, at the, towards the end of this week, whiskey tariffs came up again. You know, we, we, we've reached a, a truce and it's we're not going to be affected <laughs> by that. Um, but, you know, otherwise, I think these were really the big stories. And for me, still the biggest one of all was just and the one that seems like a lot of you wanted to hear about the most was wine continuing to fuck it up. So we'll keep bringing you that in 2024. <laughs> yeah, that is not a that is not a prediction. That's just a <laughs> given. I want to say something. I want to say something about that, though, because I think that it's important to note here that it's. What makes this such an important part of the story is that in a lot of these cases, what it really is, is is the synthesis of more than one trend, right? So it's a wine trend, but it's also a spirits trend, especially on premise. And that's where I think the conversation is so interesting and, and I think a really rich vein of material that we will continue to cover because it is not, it is simple and easy sometimes for us and for others to paint it as just like a, what has wine done wrong but it's also important to point it as what has what have spirits done right yeah and that is a big part of the story too and an important one to kind of keep in mind as we continue to discuss this because i uh, <laughs> again not a bold prediction here it ain't changing in 2024 at least not right away and and i think that's the that's to me always the most interesting part of this conversation is how have how have spirits convinced restaurants to give so much beverage real estate to cocktails and spirits and it's not like it's a always a clear like we're sales pitch thing it's been a it's been a slow building uh movement and had a lot of success yep there's a demand for it there's a demand yeah yeah but it's not an accidental demand it's a it's been a it's been a clever clearly and purposefully driven demand in certain cases by savvy brands and companies yeah yeah do we miss any? Let us know. Hit us up at podcast at vinepair.com and uh, we'll see you in 2024. See you then. Have a great year. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, 
but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Jabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.